Tonight's reading is from the book of John, first, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this fall, uh, we have been reflecting on the relationships within the Trinity. And our, our goal has been to ask, as a church that is trying to create a worshiping community in the heart of downtown, what, what do we learn from the Trinitarian ways of relating about how to be in community together ourselves? And one of the things that, that we've been uh, noticing is that the early church faced a tremendous paradigm shift. They were Jews, they worshipped the one God of Israel... They had also come to know and love the divine Lord Jesus Christ, and they'd come to experience the divine presence of the Holy Spirit. So they believed in one God, they experienced Him in three persons, and they put that together in the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, there is no fully worked out doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament. There's simply the statement of the belief in the Trinity. And so you see Jesus sending the disciples out in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You see Jesus baptized by the Father through the Spirit. You see Paul praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Trinity is everywhere in the New Testament, but it's not particularly uh, fleshed out as to how it all comes together. And it took the church four centuries to work out what all of this means. And one of the biggest questions that they wrestled with was, and and as we've been looking at that great icon, uh, that they wrestled with, are the three members of the Trinity distinct persons? There was a big debate about this, and some of the church fathers wanted to preserve the oneness of God, so they said, no, there's no way that you could have unity, and three distinct persons. And they argued that probably what you had was the one God, the Father, expressing himself in three different faces or modes, hence the name modalism. Uh, One idea was, written by a a bishop named Sibelius in the second century, was that uh, there really weren't three distinct persons, but you had the one God expressing himself as the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the Gospels, and the Spirit after Pentecost. And there were other versions on that. And so this all came to a head in the summer of 325 when uh, Constantine called a a great council to his lakeside palace in Nicaea. And that is an icon of of that council. Um, It started uh, with about 300 bishops in attendance. Everyone in Christendom was invited. The first thing they tackled was the deity of Christ and ultimately concluded that the scriptures did indeed teach that he was divine. And then they moved on to this question of uh, whether or not there were three distinct persons in the Trinity. Now, the hero of the council was uh, a great uh, man of God named Athanasius. And in addition to arguing for the deity of Christ, 
he argued that if for, the, for God to truly be love, that the members of the Trinity had to be distinct, because if they were not distinct persons, there was no way for the Trinity to be loving one another. Well, that didn't entirely settle the debate, and the debate went on for about 50 more years until the, the Council of Constantinople. Now, there was a great leader at this council that, that helped uh, wrestle this one and provide guidance, and his name was uh, Basil the Great. He lived in the, the middle of the 4th century, and he wrote a very famous book called On the Holy Spirit, and one of the things that he argued was that, yes, the Holy Spirit was a distinct person, the Son was a distinct person, and the Father was a distinct person. And eventually, after a lot of argument and searching of Scripture, the church fathers agreed that Basil was right. And they decided to adopt all this in, in a creed. And the creed had started 50 years earlier at Nicaea. And, and then at Constantinople, they refined it. And this has become the, the common creed of all Christendom. Uh, technically, it's called the Nicaea-Constantinople Creed. For short, we call it the Nicene Creed. Uh, we're not going to go through it tonight, but one of the things that I, I want you to see and think about the next time we share it as a church is notice how the authors of the Nicene Creed stress the distinct members of the Trinity. It starts off, we believe in one God, and then they describe who He is. Then it says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, and they describe His distinct role. And then we believe in the Holy Spirit, and then they describe His distinct role. Now, you might be thinking, who cares? <laughs> you know, does, it really, does it really matter? Were these just Greek philosophical speculations that don't really matter for us today? Well, the first reason why it matters is because the church fathers, more than anything else in their doctrine of, of God, wanted to be faithful to Scripture. And the scriptural evidence clearly teaches the mystery that God is one, while also being three distinct persons. Uh, we already heard John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So the Word is not the same thing as God. He is distinct. He is with God while being God. In that passage in John fifteen twenty six, each member of the Trinity has a distinct role. When the Helper comes... Jesus says, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit is sent from the Father to bear witness to the Son. 1 John 2.1 If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is distinct. He's a lawyer arguing our case before the Father. He has a distinct role from the Father. Romans 8, 26. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So there again, the Spirit is distinct from the Father. He prays to the Father on our behalf. Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. The Spirit rests upon Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 2. God the Father knew you. He chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you've obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So there you go. 
Three distinct persons, three distinct roles. God the Father chooses. God the Spirit makes us holy. God the Son cleanses us by His blood. So one reason they argued about this for over 100 years was because it was a question of what Scripture taught. And the Scriptures teach that there is one God who exists in a community of three persons. Now, there's more, and the more is where we're going to spend the rest of the time tonight. Uh, We have said that, that Christianity teaches that a relationship lies at the center of the universe. That the reason why we say God is love is because we believe God exists in a community of three divine persons. And one of the things we've been saying the last month is that God exists in a relationship and therefore is a model for healthy relating. And that's really the heart of this whole series, is that if God is God, then he will show us and reveal to us the best way to be in community. And we've seen that there's two fundamental practices uh, that go on in the Trinity that illustrate what a good relationship looks like. On the one hand, the members of the Trinity bond with each other, they attach, they connect. On the other hand, they're separate, they're distinct. And we have said that 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 is really the heart of being in a healthy community and being in a healthy relationship, is that you bond, you're close, you're emotionally and spiritually connected, but at the same time you're separate, you're distinct, you're whole, you're well-differentiated. And that's what we see in the Trinity. Now, tonight I want to spend a little more time looking at this idea of, of the Trinity as being distinct and in individual persons. One writer says this, Like the persons of the Trinity, persons in healthy families can be distinguished from one another. The father is not the son, the son's not the spirit, the father's not the mother, the mother's not the child. It all are persons, and this replies respect for the boundaries of the various members of the family in recognition of their full personhood. What's he saying? In any healthy community, there is not a blurring of roles. In any healthy family, in any healthy friendship, in any healthy marriage, there is distinction between the persons in the relationship. They're connected, but they don't just bleed into each other and lose themselves. Uh, Another writer says, Each member of the Trinity identifies with the others. Each one transposes himself into the others without confusing his own personality with the others. So, the members of the community are distinct persons who bond deeply. And that's an essential balance that we need to keep in our relationships. Now, what happens in a community when you fail to retain your distinctiveness? What happens at a church? What happens in a marriage? What happens among close friends? What happens among your people? We like to use that term around here a lot, that all of us have people that that we've turned our chairs towards, that we're trying to be intimate with. What happens in, 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 among your people when you do not have a distinct sense of self and identity when you go into the relationship? Well, today we call what happens codependency. I think Paul would have called it idolatry. Uh, 
Codependency is the idolatry of other people. Uh, today they would say it's addiction to other people. Uh, when I have no clear sense of who I am as a son or daughter of God, and I go into relationship with you on the basis of need, and most of this, 90% of this is all subconscious, it's in the basement as we like to say, and I go into this relationship, this marriage, this, this friendship, uh, this church, with this huge hole in my soul, because I don't know who I am in Christ, and I give you the power to redeem or destroy me, I make you God, I give you more power than God has in my life, I commit idolatry, and ultimately the relationship implodes. That's codependency. Uh, The authors of the book, Love is a Choice, uh, write this. They say, in interpersonal codependency, the codependent has become so enmeshed in the other person that the sense of self, personal identity, is severely restricted and crowded out by that other person's problems. Now, Jesus lives out, for example, his role in the Trinity, grounded and rooted in the love of the Father. Uh, That's the whole story of the baptism, is that Jesus understands that he is beloved. In a similar way, you and I enter into relationships with others, grounded and rooted in a sense of our belovedness in Christ. This is is the way we avoid codependency. This is the way we avoid relational idolatry. This is the way we avoid emotional adultery. Is that we go into the community rooted and grounded in the love of God. And you see this all through Paul's letters. In Ephesians 3, he prays. He says, uh, I pray that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him, that your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And then in Colossians 3, he says, You died to this life. Your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Put on your new life and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like him. Romans 5, verse 1, We rejoice because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit. Galatians 4, 6, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we could give hundreds more. The idea is, is that if you're going to enter into any relationship in a healthy way, you need to first be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. You cannot go into the relationship with a a leaking, empty, sieve-like heart that is a vacuum for love, clinging to anybody who will come close to you and dragging them under with you. That's bad for community. Uh, Two psychologists, Frank Minrith and and Paul Meyer, have come up with ten traits of codependency. And uh, I just thought we'd put them on the screen there. This is what happens when you enter into a relationship in a non-Trinitarian way, when you're not distinctive in your personality and grounded in Christ, when you make an idol of the other person. The codependent is driven by one or more compulsions. The codependent is bound and often tormented by the way things were in the dysfunctional family of origin. The codependent's self-esteem and frequently maturity is very low. A codependent is certain his or her happiness hinges on others. Conversely, a codependent feels inordinately responsible for others. 
the codependent's relationship with a spouse or significant other person is marred by a damaging, unstable lack of balance between dependence and independence. The codependent is a master of denial and repression. The codependent worries about things he or she can't change and may well try to change them. A codependent's life is punctuated by extremes. A codependent is constantly looking for the something that is missing or lacking in life. Now, the problem, of course, is that our culture preaches a gospel of codependency. Uh, our, our culture teaches us that actually this is what we want, is, is to be totally dependent uh, upon another person. And so we have these songs about, you know, I can't live without you. We have uh, these shows about girls in vampire homes where they fall in love with a vampire and then he breaks up with her and she lies in a fetal position for a year because she needs the vampire to be a whole person. And so, by the way, don't trust vampires to make you whole. Bad idea. Uh, uh, I think Hermione is a much healthier young woman in, uh, in pop fiction. Um, we say things like... Uh, a parent is only as happy as their happiest child. Well, okay, I get what you're saying. However, I have four kids. They're never all happy. <laughs> so I've just sentenced myself to gloom. Can't be right. Uh, so a young lady stays in a relationship with a guy who treats her badly and who has no intentions of marrying her and is just using her because he's afraid of commitment. And she does not have the strength to say... What are you doing? You're an idiot. Leave. She just keeps coming back. Why? Because she's addicted. And so college athletes put up with verbal and physical abuse from coaches because they need the fix of a father's affirmation. So a husband never says what he really feels because he's terrified of his wife's anger. So a leader never makes hard decisions because she's afraid of upsetting those she leads. See, if you go into a relationship without knowing who you are in Christ... Before you know it, the relationship becomes suffocating, possessive. You easily become jealous. Your happiness totally depends on whether or not they're happy. You can't be okay if they're not okay. You fear abandonment. You'll do anything to keep the relationship from dissolving. That's not healthy. That's sick. You can live without him. You can live without her. It might not be nice or fun, but you can because you're whole in Christ. Now, I guess the question at this point is, how do you find healing for codependency? And maybe a better way to say it is to realize that codependency, all these symptoms are up on the screen, are really just that. They're symptoms of a deeper wound in your heart. They're symptoms of something that's happened or not happened in your, in your heart. Maybe a better way to ask this is, how can I relate to others out of my center in Christ? How can I relate to others uh, out of who I am in Christ? Now, the, the people that write about these things uh, say that codependency lies on a continuum. Uh, some people struggle with it hardly at all. Some people struggle a lot with it. Everybody struggles with it to some degree. I struggled quite a bit with codependency in my 20s and in my 30s. Uh, I worked on a lot in my early 40s, and I... Um, I don't think I've sinned since I was 42, is that right? Um, but, so this is all in the past. I don't have any <laughs> issues today, of course. But uh, this really was a big issue for me. And uh, it, it led to some uh, relationships ending very badly. 
uh, and I've, I've thought a lot about that. I still have tendencies towards this, but God's brought a lot of healing in my life. And, and I thought as I got to this point of the sermon, I had my little books out. and men with them. It's a great book, by the way. Love is a Choice. They've got ten stages you can go through. And I mean, the Internet blows up when you punch in codependency. Um, I'm not an expert on overcoming this. And, and, but I have experienced a measure of healing in my own life. And so I thought I would, I would just end by talking about that a little bit. First thing that had to happen for me is everything had to blow up. Uh, the relationships... Uh, both with men and women, I'm not talking about physical, I'm talking about emotional, uh, fell apart after, after a, a while, a season of me giving them too much power in my life. Uh, as someone has called it, the power to redeem or to destroy. Ask yourself, is there anybody in your life who you've given the power to redeem or destroy? No one but God should have that power. And I, I gave that power away. And so it had to blow up for me to realize how sick some of these relationships had become. And at the time, I was thinking, well, I just love this person. I just really love them. They're a mentor to me. I, I really need their affirmation. And, and it took me a while to realize, no, you made him an idol. So the second thing I had to do was I had to repent. Uh, I, I, deep repentance and, and say, you know, this is, this is wrong what I've done. This isn't just a father wound that led me to an inappropriate... No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got father wounds. So do you. So do my kids. I had to repent of idolatry. Because I'd given these people too much power in my life. The third one is God had to heal my shame. And this was surprising to me because I would not have said that I was struggling with shame. I, I was fairly successful. Things were going well and and all that stuff, what I found was that buried beneath a level of good theology and professional competence was a whole system of, of uh, shame that was built on performance and me finding my validation by writing books, getting degrees, growing churches, and, and all that. I had to repent of that, and God, God worked in healing that for me. Fourth, I had to take a break from some of those sick relationships. I had to just cut it off. Uh, I'd been dancing so long the wrong way that I couldn't just get back on the floor and change the dance. I had, to, I had to leave. I had to cut them off. And God has given me some of those back and not some of the others. And then five of six. We're not going to go on here forever. This is not Oprah. Um, God, I, I look back, and, and if I've moved it all in the continuum... A major reason is I've just spent a lot of time alone with Jesus over the years. And it's not real sexy, but I, I just have spent a lot of hours sitting in this particular chair in my house with my Bible and my journal, reading scripture and trying to apply it to my life. Sometimes it's boring. Right now, for the last two months, it's just been dry as dust. Still do it just about every day. And I think that's really helped me uh, get rooted and grounded in God's love. Then the last is just uh, God's helped me through very rich times in community. I've had wonderful conversations with, with you. Um, really, this congregation has been very healing to me. I've felt very accepted and loved here. I've not been on a performance basis except for every November during our performance review. <laughs> but that's not really an issue for me. Um, I've had really good conversations. Uh, I've been to counselors. I've had healing prayer. 
And, and I think the body of Christ has, has helped me work through that. So I don't know what it looks like for you. I will say this. The opposite of codependence is not independence, but interdependence. And that's something I think we need to understand as, as we wrap this up here. Uh, the goal is not to be the Marlboro Man. Uh, the goal is not, well, you're right, in Christ, I don't need anybody. No, there's a healthy way that the members of the Trinity depend on each other. They trust each other. They rely on each other. It's when that dependence goes into idolatry that you get into a whole bunch of trouble. So here's the question I want you to think about this week. Have I given any human being the power to redeem or destroy me. And hint, they can be dead. Let's pray.